0: So take your Bibles, and we'll go to the book of Mark again, Mark chapter 1. Let's read from Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to verse 20. It says, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of heaven, sorry, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending their nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat, with the hired servants, and went away to follow him. Let's pray again, shall we? Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we ask you this morning that by the power of the Spirit of God, you would open the Scriptures to us and teach us. Father, we pray that you would put a hedge around this room. Father, we pray that you would keep the distractions away, that we might hear what you would have to say to us. Father, we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are a lot of things that you can get wrong and still be saved and go to heaven. A lot of controversial things, a lot of small details. You can get them wrong and you can still be saved and go to heaven. But there is one thing that you absolutely must get right or we will not go to heaven, and that is the gospel. What is the biblical gospel? The gospel call is a call to be Jesus' disciples, not simply to believe. In the Greek, the word believers in the New New Testament is always a verb or an adjective, but it never comes up as a noun. It's always an action thing. Its belief is never simply, in the Bible, an intellectual assent. It's always belief that incorporates action that flows out of that belief. Now the Greek also uses the word disciple as a noun to describe those that had committed themselves to a leader, a master, or a teacher to follow him. And Jesus' call to the men that were with him was to become his disciples. The Christians in the post-gospel books... Acts, all the way to the end of the Bible, are most often referred to as disciples. The word believers comes up about seven or eight times, but over 40 times, the New Testament in the epistles and the book of Acts refers to Christians as disciples of Jesus. And now, the problem is that the problem with the word believer, and we use it a lot today he's a believer, he's an unbeliever, she's a believer, and so on. Gather the believers together. The problem with that word is it lends itself to a concept of belief without action, which James very carefully uh, counters. He says that faith without works is dead. It's no good at all. So disciple is a far more accurate term for what we are in relation to Christ. We are his disciples if we are doing All his gospel calls us to do. If we are repenting and believing and following Jesus Christ, then we are his disciples. The reason we need as a church to consider this is there is an epidemic in most churches of men, women, and young people that have made a profession, a statement that they believe, a profession of faith, and yet they live exactly like the world around us. And that's wrong. That's not what Jesus called us to do. The danger is we fool ourselves into thinking that as long as I can claim to believe something, it matters nothing how I live, how I speak, and how I behave. Because at the end of it all, I will go to heaven, and that's all that matters. Well, let me tell you, that's a lie of the devil. It matters. It matters huge. Jesus' gospel calls us to become disciples, not merely believers. Their call is to repent of sin. The call is to believe the gospel, the subject and content of of which is Christ himself. The gospel is Jesus Christ. It's all about him. It contains him. He's a subject of the gospel. He is the gospel itself. Okay? The call is for us to leave everything behind and follow him. And if we don't get this right... The consequences are eternal in scope. So it's very important that we get this right. Now last week we began to look at the content of Jesus' gospel and we saw that there are five things there. In verse 15, he says the time is fulfilled. He says the kingdom of God is near, number two. And he says, thirdly, we are to repent Fourthly, he says, to believe in the gospel, and the fifth element is to follow me. Now, we looked at the first two of those elements last week, and we saw that the time is fulfilled is how the Old Testament promises are fulfilled in Jesus' coming. The Lamb of God, which the whole world looked for, is here, and the waiting is over. That's why he says the time is fulfilled. Then he says the kingdom of God has come near, and what he's showing is that Jesus is the legitimate king, with power and authority to reign over his people. And Jesus is exercising his power and his authority as God and king. And we saw all through the book of Mark and some of the other messages in the Gospels about Jesus having power and authority to rule and reign as king. Thirdly, we saw that Jesus is gathering in participants for the realm of his kingdom. And the entrance into the kingdom of God requires faith, and action, and following Jesus. Those three things together. So what I want to do today is unpack the last of those three elements of the gospel, repent, to believe, and to follow Jesus. So thirdly, on your note sheet there, repentance. So what is repentance? And I put there for you, repentance is submitting to Jesus' authority as God. You can add to that, repentance is sorrow for sin, genuine, heartfelt grieving over sin. Repentance is thirdly, changing our heart and our behavior in submission to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God. How is it that we submit to Jesus' authority as God and King? So how is it we come to have genuine sorrow for sin? Well, the very first thing is we need to see Jesus as he truly is. We need to see him as God. We must, first of all, change our minds about Jesus. He is God. And secondly, we must see our sin not as we see it, but as God sees it. And that's the difference. So we must change our minds regarding sin and see it exactly as God does. Listen. Everything in this life relates to God. Everything. Our lives, our ministry, our jobs, our struggles, our failures, our weaknesses. Everything in this life that we have to live through relates to God. And we need to learn to see our lives, how they relate to God, and how God sees it, not how we see it. So, first of all, we must repent and change our mind. Jesus is God and King. Now, theologians go to great lengths to prove Jesus' deity. They have great kind of arguments, and they're all very good. The contemporary church has gone the other way and gone to great lengths to make Jesus as human as possible. But we desperately need, all of us, to see Jesus as he truly is, as the Bible describes him. Jesus Christ is God with all the attributes of deity. I'm going to go through about four of them, and just to kind of un- Unpack them and enjoy them and savor them for a little bit. We must, first of all, submit to Jesus as God omnipotent, God Almighty. You remember the story in Mark chapter 4? Jesus and the disciples on the boat and the great big storm came down the Sea of Galilee. And the boat is rocking up and down. The wind and the waves are contrary to the boat. And where's Jesus? He's asleep in the stern on a pillow and the disciples are working like mad. They're trying to control the sail and bail out the water and they're trying to keep the boat from capsizing. And finally, one of them runs to the back of the boat and says, Jesus, wake up. Don't you care that we are perishing? And I love the way the NASB puts it. Jesus stood up and said, hush, be still. The word is hush, just like shh. And I can imagine in a split second, The wind just stopped and every wave sank into the ocean. And about a minute later, the disciples are looking over the edge of the boat and they can see their reflection in the calm water. Jesus is omnipotent God. He has the power to control nature's most powerful elements. I was watching the other day this show called... uh, storm hunters. It's about these guys that go down the tornado alley in America, and they're chasing these tornadoes and hurricanes, and one of these guys got caught in a mega twister. The bottom of this tornado was one mile across. It was massive, and the damage and destruction that that tornado did while it was going down that alley was unbelievable, and you can imagine Jesus in the boat staying up and saying, shh, the wind just stopped. The implication of that is this, because Jesus is omnipotent God, he is powerful enough to save even you. And because Jesus is omnipotent God, he is powerful to destroy your soul in hell if you don't repent and believe. That is the biblical gospel. Secondly, we must submit to Jesus as God omniscient. He knows everything. The very next chapter of Mark, Mark chapter 2, He's in this house, he's teaching all the people, and they're watching there, and all standing around looking and listening to him. And all of a sudden, above his head, there starts to be a crack, and then a big hole, and there's dust, plaster and dust flying everywhere. And all of a sudden, out of this great big gaping hole, a bed lowers itself down into the room, and four men are holding the ropes. And Jesus, it says, he saw their faith, and he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. And immediately, all the Pharisees and scribes, all the religious know-it-alls were going, Hmm is this that only god can forgive sin and they're reasoning quietly within their hearts and the bible says that jesus immediately aware in his spirit that they were reasoning this in their hearts he spoke to them and he answered their question directly listen jesus is god omniscient he knows everything He knows you in all your details. He knows every number of all the hairs on your head. He knows all your motives, the thoughts of your heart. He knows every single little thing about you, the things that you will never know about yourself. Jesus already knows. He is God-omniscient. Thirdly, we must submit to Jesus as God-omnipresent, which means he is inescapable. In Matthew 28, 20, he gathered all his disciples up on the mountain. He's about to go back into heaven to be with his father. And he says, lo, I will be with you always. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Which means to us, you cannot escape from God. Jesus is omnipresent God. He's everywhere. You cannot escape from him. As fast as you run away from God, you run directly into God. He is God. And one of the problems we have in this society, in this world, is we have a wrong view, an inaccurate view of who God is. We have allowed contemporary church and the culture around us to define who God is and what He is like. What we need to do is go back to the Scriptures and soak up who Jesus is. He is the living God. Jesus is preaching repentance and calling them to change their minds about God, about sin, and about righteousness Men and women, people of God, we need to soak up the scriptures and see who he is like. It will drive us to our knees. And fourthly, fourthly, we must change our minds and submit to Jesus in the most terrifying sense of all. He is God most holy. The demon ascribed him and said, you are the holy one of God. In John 8, 46, Jesus is an, does an amazingly remarkable thing. He stands there with all of his disciples around him and the Pharisees and scribes are having one of those debates back and forth. And Jesus looks at them and he says, which one of you convicts me of sin? Now, if I said that in this room, four people would dive to the front of the line, Heather, John Cam, and Brady, and every one of them would have a list this long. But Jesus stands there in front of 12 men who have walked with him and talked with him. They know everything about him. They've seen him pray. They've seen him sleep. They've seen him eat. They've seen him in every capacity of the life they have spent with him. And he asks them all, which one of you convicts me of sin? And nobody has an answer. None can find fault with Jesus. Not even his enemies. The ones that hated him the most. Why do you think the Pharisees hated Jesus so much? because he was holy. We can deal with people who are self-righteous and we can deal with people who are educated and smart or people who are not. But when we come face to face with God who is most holy, it is something that we want to reach out and destroy. I heard about a fellow walking around with a t-shirt that says that Jesus is coming back soon on the front. And the backside was blasphemous. He said, this time we'll get him. The reality is, if every single one of us was confronted with Jesus and we saw him in his holiness like that again, we would do exactly the same thing when he was here the first time. We would try to destroy him. The problem is, we cannot deal with the holiness of God. In the presence of his disciples who knew him best, None of them could convict him. None of them could point to a sin. Even Pilate's testimony, I find no fault in him. The Bible describes God infinitely, including Jesus, sorry, as infinitely removed and separate from sin. It's the most terrifying attribute to us because God, who is the most valuable being in all of existence, values himself most highly and he hates all that oppose himself, that oppose his will, and oppose his word. God, being absolutely holy, must abhor sin. Jesus hates sin. And because Jesus is God most holy, hating sin, you and I cannot approach him with our sin. It must be removed. If we dared approach God with our sin, the holiness of God would strike out and destroy us. You remember the story? Nadab and Abihu... They bring unauthorized fire into the tabernacle. They disregarded God's holiness. They disobeyed God's command. And the Bible says that fire came out from before the Lord and struck them dead. And their cousins came in and grabbed them by their priestly tunics and carried them out and buried them outside the camp. Moses spoke to Aaron after his two sons were killed and he said this, By those who approach God, he must be treated as holy and he must be honored before all the people. When we come near to God, we must realize that he is most holy. We forget too easily. Uzzah put out his hand to steady the Ark of the Covenant. Remember the story? David's bringing the Ark of the Covenant from its place way off the land back into Jerusalem, and they put it on a cart, and this oxen stumbles, and the cart tips a little bit, and Uzzah wants to protect the ark from falling on the ground. He puts his hand out, and he touches the holy Ark of the Covenant, and God struck him dead. How dare he place his hand on something so holy! He disregarded the holiness of God. He disobeyed God's command and he was struck down dead. Regardless of their motives, in disobeying God, they were destroyed. What on earth makes us think that God will deal with us any less? But wait. There's more. Even as God is infinitely holy and hating of sin, there is also his immense Boundless grace. Not only must we see Jesus in those attributes, we must also see Jesus as the Lamb of God. Like John, we said last week, he saw him come walking down the hillsides of, of the Galilee Valley of the Jordan Valley there to be baptized. And he said, look, behold, look. It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and we must see him as holy yet coming to be made sin. You ever stop and think about that? God Most Holy, Jesus Christ, was made to be sin for us that we might have the righteousness of God in Him. It's the most extreme paradox you could possibly comprehend. We need to see Him silent before His accusers as they rail against Him, bringing one false witness after another, buffeting Him and beating Him. We need to see Him hanging, bleeding, and suffering on a cross. We need to see him in our mind's eye in the cold, dark silence of a tomb. We also need to see him striding out of that tomb, the victorious conqueror. Listen, because Jesus is the Lamb of God, his death is sufficient for your sin, all of it. He died for it all. He died for you. Don't let the contemporary church or the ungodly secular world around us define who God is to us and what he's like. We must learn learn by reading and meditating on scripture what God is truly like. And when we see our life in the light of scriptures, when we see who God really is, then we can have a right view of our sin and what it's really like. Again, Jesus is preaching repentance and calling them to change their minds about God and sin and righteousness. So first, we must change our minds in regard to who God is. Secondly, we must change our minds in regard to our sin. Sin is rebellion against Jesus' authority as God. God sees our sin as lawlessness. The Bible says in 1 John 3, verse 4, that sin is lawliness, lawlessness. And maybe you think sin is not so bad. Or your sin really isn't that big a deal. Well, let's take one commandment and see how you do. Okay, what's the first and greatest of all the commandments? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy mind, and all thy strength. Love the Lord your God. With all your mind? Some of it. How about all your strength? Not really. How about all your soul? A little bit, maybe. But all your heart. Remember, before you answer, God knows the thoughts of your heart. How did you do? You think, how hard is that to do? To love God. Not commit murder, not steal, not lie, not all those things. Those are difficult in some senses. But to love the Lord your God, and that is the first and greatest commandment of God. Whenever we fail to love God with all, all of our faculties, we've sinned. Failing to love God offends God. And failing to love God with everything is to hold God in the highest of contempt. Whenever we fail to love and glorify God in our actions, in our attitudes, in our nature, we've sinned. And sin has terrible consequences. It destroys, first of all, our relationship with God. And sin also destroys our relationships with each other. The problem is, we see sin in a comparative sense, don't we? I may be a liar, but well, she's an adulteress. I'm I'm not that bad. Well, you know, I may be a thief, but I'm no murderer. You know, I have some pride and some honor. Listen, let me give you an illustration of what sin is really like. I, heard, I was listening, working in Glen Waverley doing a fix and uh, driving back and forth listening to sermon audio. And I heard this illustration. It's great. And then just to tie it together, I was watching a, a show on um, Discovery, these fellow called Iceberg Hunters. I don't know how you hunt icebergs, but apparently you can hunt icebergs. So they go out in a boat with a high-powered rifle and they fire uh, bullets at the corners of icebergs. And the iceberg chunks fragment and fall off, and they go in the ocean. They pull up these icebergs, and they're, they're Newfoundlanders, so they got this bizarre accent. And we were watching, just laughing, because we come from Canada, right? And uh, these fellows are putting the ice in the water. And the guy says, this is the most purest drinking water that you can ever get, is iceberg water. And they take it to a processing plant, and they melt it and bottle it, and you can buy glacial iceberg water, and it's the purest water. I want you to imagine for a second, we take a bottle of that water or a glass, if you like, and fill it full of the purest, freshest, cold iceberg water. Who would like a drink? I think somebody would like a drink. I'd li- I right now would like a drink. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good, huh? I want you to imagine that sin is like raw sewage. Put that glass on the counter. Take a dropper. Take one drop of sewage and put it in. Now who wants a drink? Every lie we tell is a drop of filthy sewage into that glass. Every prideful thought or action is a drop of sewage into the glass. Every time we value somebody or something more highly than God, it's a drop in the glass. Men... Every time we lust after a woman in our hearts, it's another drop of sewage in the glass. Every time we covet what God has blessed somebody else with, it's a drop in the glass. Every time we fail to glorify God as we were created to do, it's a drop in the glass. We fail to love God with every inch of our being, it's a drop, a large drop into the glass. Would you drink it now? No. I don't know about you, but I sure wouldn't. When we come to God expecting Him to accept us in our sin, we are expecting God to do exactly that, to take us defiled. He created us holy and pure. And clean, but the Bible says we have sought out many devices, we have vilely contaminated ourselves by our sin. The only difference in that illustration and reality is that we were born in sin and already contaminated, but we have greatly, greatly added to that contamination. Listen, we must stop viewing our sin in comparison to our neighbor, we must change our minds and see our sin in comparison to God's holiness. We must see your sin and I must see my sin as repulsive and vile and corrosive as sulfuric acid. And it must cause us to grieve over our sin. You see a relationship broken down, torn apart, it breaks your heart. I remember talking to my brother on the phone after his wife had left him for a while. He was absolutely broken. He was grieving in his heart. We ought to grieve over the fact that sin tears down our relationship with God. We ought to grieve over the fact that sin demanded a death, Jesus' death. The Bible says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. In other words, blessed are those who grieve and mourn over their sin. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Repentance, like we said before, is genuine sorrow for the sin we have committed. When Jesus walked along the beach preaching repentance, that's what he meant. We must grieve. But listen, we must not despair. There's a difference. Don't give up hope because there is hope. There's beautiful, incredible hope because of what God has done. The Bible says in verse 15, believe in the gospel. Now, believing is being convinced of Jesus' power and authority to keep his promises. So how do we come to believe? Well, it's as simple as cat. I don't mean C-A-T. I mean K-A-T. And it's a little, let me call those things anagram or something like that. Yeah. It's, it sounds for three words in your, in your note sheet there. We must know the truth of the gospel. We must agree with the God that it is true, and we must trust God, be fully persuaded that God has done what the truth of the gospel describes, that God will keep his promises. We must know the truth, the promises of the gospel, and listen, and give them to you steadily and clearly. If you want to get a recap, come and find me there, and I'll show it to you. This is what the Bible teaches us. You ready? God is holy, righteous, and unchanging. The Bible teaches that God gave us His law, written on stone tablets and written on our hearts. The Bible tells us that God will punish lawbreakers and sinners with His full wrath. We are sinners. The Bible makes that clear. We don't love God with all our faculties, therefore we have sinned. But God... There's a couple of verses in the Bible have the phrase, but God, to start them off. Ephesians 4 is one of them. But God, in boundless grace, because of the love with which he loved us, he sent Jesus' Son, Jesus Christ, his Son, to die in our place and for our sin. God sent Jesus Christ to satisfy all the righteous demands of the law. And God promises, listen, God promises this. And the Bible says that God cannot tell a lie. God cannot deny himself by lying. So if God makes a promise to you, it's absolutely sure and amen. You can take it to the bank. He promises if we repent of sin and if we trust him following Jesus, then he'll save us from his wrath, which is surely to come. We must obey God's command to repent and believe. We must obey knowing the glorious, God-exalting truth of the gospel. I can give you all that again. we not just knowing it. Listen, I know the theory of evolution. I do not agree with it. It's absolutely wrong. You can know something and not agree with it. But what, the, what belief is, is both knowing and agreeing. So we agree with God that all of what the Bible says about the gospel and about everything the Bible says, let's just summarize it that way, We agree with God that it is true, that it's gospel truth. We agree with it. And finally, we trust God to keep those promises. Listen. Be convinced in your own heart and mind that Jesus has the power and authority to keep his promises. Even the fact that he walked long and said, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. It's a fulfillment of hosts of Old Testament promises that one day the Messiah would come. He's saying, listen, God kept his promises. Here I am. Repent and trust me. The very fact that I'm here is proof that God keeps promises. Be convinced in your heart and your mind that Jesus has the power and the authority to keep his promises. Cast yourself. The only way I can think of this in my mind's eye is like one of those guys on the, in the concert and they do a, the dive in the crowd, right? The guy runs off the edge of the stage and he just throws himself out in the crowd. And all the fans the crowd below catch him. And they kind of pass him around and put him back on the stage again. It's exactly like that we throw ourselves into God's hands and we cast ourselves fully on God to lift us up and take care of us. It's like a dying man, right? Imagine a guy in hospital, he's dying, he's emaciated away and they come in with some great news. Listen, we have found one cure, one medicine that will take care of your sickness and you will live. And they hand him the bottle and the man grabs the bottle and he reads a dose of the dosage instructions and he opens the bottle and he drinks it all down. Sinner, listen, Christ is your only hope for salvation. He's your only hope to be able to stand face to face with God who is most holy and be washed clean of all your sin. All that defilement, it's like Jesus takes that glass and just throws it out and refills it and says, there it is, pure and clean again. You're washed clean Sinner, take Christ and take him as your own. Realize your sinfulness before God. Realize your utter helplessness and cry out to, be God, to God to be rescued and trust him. Listen, he will keep his promises. You can take it all the way to the bank. And finally, the fifth element there is follow me. What does Jesus mean when he calls us to follow him? Following Jesus is to submit to his authority for all our life. Biblical salvation includes the call to live in obedience to God. Faith without action is not biblical faith. James 2 to 14 through 26 makes the point very, very clear. Faith without works is dead. Listen, following Christ is not a work which we do in order to earn a part of our salvation. Don't make that mistake. Okay, following Jesus is the life of faith and obedience that displays and proves that the work of God has been done in our hearts. The fact that we love Christ more than anything else, the fact that we're going to go wherever he takes us, the fact that we're more afraid of God than we are of our fellow men, it proves the work of God done in us. But you know what? We cannot separate it from faith and repentance. To follow Jesus, we must submit our will to Jesus' will. He leads and we follow. The picture there in Mark one seventeen, is he calls them to follow me. It's uh, literally this way after me. And in the, the New Testament times, a rabbi or a teacher would walk ahead of all of his disciples and he would set the pace and he would set the direction and he would walk the way. And when he wanted to stop, they would stop. When he wanted to teach them, he would teach them. When they wanted to go, they would go. In other words, they were the ones that were following him. And you know what? Listen, I've heard this said, God is my co-pilot. The co-pilot doesn't fly the plane, folks. It's the pilot. Jesus must not be a part of your life. Jesus must be your life. We need to get a hold of something. Listen, there is a tremendous verse in Galatians 2.20. I want to read it for you. I can quote it, but I want to read it anyway. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Listen, get a hold of this one part right here. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. You see the difference? God is my co-pilot means I'm still in charge. He's there as my safety net. He's there as my pixie dust against anything bad happening to me. No, that's not the way it is. When Jesus says, follow me, he means we submit our full will to follow him. It means we count the cost. To follow Jesus is to count the cost. If you read Luke 14, 25 to 33, you see there, he describes all the costs of being Jesus' disciple. And he makes the point again and again, unless you're willing to do this, you cannot. But you have a tough time. Not you'll... You'll find it difficult. Not you. You know your friends won't get along with you. No, he says, you cannot be my disciple unless you're willing to pay the price and count the cost. We must leave, thirdly, our former lifestyle behind. Notice that they were fishers of men and they left their nets. They put everything down and they got up out of the boat and they walked after Jesus. Whatever lifestyle you live, no matter how much you drink, no matter how much you sleep around, no matter how much you sin against God, whether it's great or small, you leave it behind. The problem with us, and I know because I struggled with this for years, I tried to put one arm around my former lifestyle and one arm around Christ. And the only problem was Christ was going this way and my former lifestyle was going this way and it just didn't work. I went in circles and got nowhere. We leave everything behind. Remember the rich young ruler, comes to Jesus, wants to follow him? He's kept all the law since he was a child. And Jesus says, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and come and follow me. And the man could not leave his lifestyle behind. And he walked away sad. And Jesus was sad too. Listen. Leaving? Sorry. Following Christ means leaving everything behind. It means counting the cost. It means leaving our former lifestyle. It means being willing to leave loved ones behind. Notice in verse number twenty, he says, called them. They left their father Zebedee in the boat." Does that mean, if you trust Christ, you just walk away from your family and your marriage and all that? No, that's not what he means. When he says, "If you must," uh, He who does not hate his father and mother and brother and sister cannot be my disciple. Does he mean we all of a sudden turn around and hate everybody in our family to follow Jesus? What he means is we must follow Jesus and love him with a love so great that in comparisons like hating our family, it means we're willing, if necessary, to leave our family behind, to count the cost and walk away. Meaning what? Not walk away from marriages. I don't mean that. What I mean is being willing to leave them to go their other direction. And you go whether they come with you or not. If your parents don't believe, you're willing to follow Christ anyway. If your mom and dad don't believe, you follow Christ anyway. If your husband doesn't believe, you follow Christ anyway. If your wife won't believe, you follow Christ anyway. Like John Bunyan stuck his fingers in his ears and said, no way. They begged him to come back, and what he was displaying for us was the cost of following Christ. It means we leave everything behind. So let me ask you the hard question: What are you trying to hang on to what' it's so easy to grab a hold of this. I just i don 't want to lift this up i won 't let it go. I like my wealth, I like my this, I like my the other thing. I like my little bits of sin. I want to hang on to them. Like a little bit of worldliness to just spice up my life. Doesn't work. The call of the gospel is great, glorious news, but it's also very costly news to leave everything behind and follow Jesus. The problem, folks, is the church, the world we live in, and the church in this world has gotten so used to hanging on to little bits of worldliness and trying to follow Christ. And that's why we're dragging the world into the church and God's church is being slowly, steadily destroyed. He's calling us to leave everything behind. What are you going to do with all of this? On the bottom of your sheet there, I put this. You can follow along if you want. Jesus walked through Galilee preaching the gospel and calling to all to repent, to believe, and to follow him. He's calling us, you and I, to become his disciples. Are you, am I, willing to repent and change our mind about who God is? Are we willing to repent and see your sin, see our sin as God sees it? Are you willing to grieve? Are you grieving over sin? I'm going to call you with all my heart. Take a long time. Spend some time before God on your knees and start to review your sin before him in light of his holiness, not in light of how good or bad your friends are, in light of his holiness. Are you convinced, absolutely, unshakably convinced that Jesus has the power and authority as God to keep those gospel promises to you? And are you trusting Jesus to keep them and save you from the wrath of God which is to come. Are you willing to leave everything behind to count the cost and follow Jesus no matter where he leads you? you? Want to know more? Come and find out more. Let's pray. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray together. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning again. And, Father, some of those scenes from the New Testament still fill my mind. Jesus standing in the boat and with a word stilling the wind and the waves. Father, we rejoice this morning. We worship him this morning because he is God omnipotent, almighty and all-powerful to save even the most wretched of sinners. Father, we also would look and we would see him as the Lamb of God. And Father, the scenes of the crucifixion and his suffering and his death are just, they cause us to grieve, Lord. We can't even begin to comprehend what he endured. Father, in our mind's eye, we see him standing there silent as the accusers one after another bring accusations, false witness and false testimony against the God of heaven, against the God of all truth. And Father, we see him as they take him and they scourge him. And the shocking amount of blood loss and the pain he endured is something that we can't even begin to comprehend. And Father, as they displayed him to all the people, mocking him and jeering him, taking him the longest, most torturous route to his death. And there they crucified him between two thieves. And Father, we see him on the cross, the Lamb of God, God's own provision of a sacrifice for sin. And Father, it causes our hearts to just break. Father, even more than that, as we stop and we remember his words as they drove the nails through his wrist, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Father, we rejoice, we give thanks this morning that Jesus Christ has conquered sin and death. And Father, we give you thanks this morning that we can be washed in his blood and made clean. And Father, in a few minutes, we're going to stop and we're going to take the bread and we're going to break it together. And we're going to remember our Savior. Father, we thank you for him. Father, we ask you also that if there is somebody in this room that is trying desperately to live a double lifestyle, claiming to be a disciple and living just like the world, Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would give them not a minute's rest, until they turn in repentance and cry out for forgiveness and turn and pick up their cross and follow after the Lord Jesus. Father, we ask you to do a great work in this church amongst us. Father, revive us. The words of the psalmist keep coming back to mind. Revive me according to your word. Father, according to the word of God this morning, we cry out to you to revive us. Renew our love. Renew our first love, Father, our first love for Christ. Help us, O God, to count the cost and pick up our crosses and walk after him, to be willing to go the way he went, to pray the way he prayed, to preach and teach and love the way he loved. Father, that the world might look and see and say, truly, these are his disciples. Father, we ask you these things and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.